It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, let me tell you about the Headstock Guitar Lovers Festival. If you are a luthier or a guitar builder and you're looking to display your wares and market your goods, we've got the place for you. Headstock Guitar Lovers Festival, November 6th and 7th in San Diego, California. A hall filled with gorgeous guitars, their makers, banjos, ukuleles, and other instruments. Live performances by Peter Sprague, Andy Powers, Clint Prager, Dusty Brow, and more to be announced shortly. Headstock Guitar Lovers Festival, November 6th and 7th in San Diego. Guitarloversfestival.com. And of course, the Boardroom International Surfboard Show coming up here September 25th and 26th, presented by U.S. Blanks. Tickets will be available beginning in August. Boardroomshow.com. I've known Jim Kempton for quite a long time. He would be a guest of my terrestrial radio show more than once. And at one point, I called him in as a guest co-host. Since then, he's been a great source of information and historical context. And I believe that to be the case during this podcast. Intelligent, thought-provoking, and a fun guy to talk with. On this episode of the Boardroom Podcast, Jim Kempton. Let us begin. Jim Kempton, welcome to the uh, Boardroom Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm going to open this water here. Does this need to be, is this the right distance I'm talking about this out loud? So, Jim Kempton, you were the editor at Surfer Magazine. Tell me about that a little bit. When did you become editor at Surfer Magazine? So, I started at Surfer as the associate editor in 1977, uh, right kind of at a transition period. It was the literally the issue we went monthly on and started working there then until 1986. So, it was a real transitional period, both from a 
from an equipment standpoint and from a political or or you know sociological standpoint you had the first it was a transitional period both from a standpoint of of performance and of equipment and of social change so it was the it was the years that the professional surfing circuit started it was the years that the thruster came into kind of prominence it was the period where um, surfing kind of moved beyond the sort of stage it had been in for quite a few years in the sort of late 60s, early 70s, and into a kind of a whole new phase, um, both for riding big waves to uh, women coming into the surfing um, scene on a professional level for the first time really, you know, in a, in, in a really effective way. Um, and when it was really kind of reaching society at a at, at a, a different level rather than just being kind of an anomaly out there in the world yeah that's a that's an interesting point right that this this time the turn of this the turn of the decade there from the 70s to the 80s um certainly here in california those 70s were sort of a, i don't know if dar- a dark era is the right way to phrase it but there was an anti-commercialism vibe there was very much this kind of like hunker down um the 72 world contest was a joke and this whole thing's kind of a joke and let's just be in our own little regional tribal communities and and we'll put out a magazine, you know, Severson, was it, was Severson still involved? No, it was, it was, it was Pez then, Pez, from 71 yeah. onwards. Right. Okay, 71 on was Pez? Really? Pez had it in 71, huh? Yeah. But um, anyway, I don't know where I was going with that other than it was sort of this um, rejuvenational sort of rebirth for lack of a better phrase, uh, time of, time for you. And what an exciting time to be the new. It, it to was be working and, at and it, it was a it, it was it was a real you know I I think of myself as kind of being the bridge generation you know the guys that learned how to surf on on longboards when that's all there was and then actually then had a transition to riding shortboards and learning how to do really how to surf all over again because we you know at the time no one knew what worked. So when shortboards came in, it wasn't like, oh, well, here's what we do. You just cut down a longboard or you just make this. The boards were all over the place, and most of them were complete and utter failures as far as design elements go. It took much longer than people really realized to, like, kind of begin to get, you know, the the functionality of a board that's two foot short or, long, you know, to and work. Do you, do you attribute that, this sort of long period where board design didn't really get refined to a bunch of people just cutting down boards and trying stuff out. And we know that was happening, but is it more in fact that people weren't communicating about what they were learning, either good or bad? Was there a lack of communication? There was no cohesive sort of community, like let's all get together and share what we're learning. It was just a bunch of outliers doing their own things. Yeah, and you got to remember that Surfer Magazine was the Bible then. It was what everybody referenced things to, and it came out every two months. So if you missed getting into an issue that was just about ready to come out, it was literally four months before you would actually cover that, and then it might or might not get covered, and then it might be correct or not correct. And you know there were there were, there were no computers, there were no cell phones. People wrote letters literally back and forth to one another with drawings of their surfboards on them. And going to Maui was like the outer islands were still sort of a, a an outer area. You know, yeah, yeah. it wasn't just you just hopped on a plane and, and, and went there. So, I mean, things were so much slower by comparison to now. There was no real time. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, that we have now where everything you see, you see the moment it happens while it's happening. Yeah. Then it was this like months and months. This podcast has already been put out. That's we right. don't even know That's it, but right. People being are listening. listening um, so back to your, your start at Surfer Magazine, because, you know, you and I, we, I worked at Surfer Magazine for 10 years. You worked there for a long time. My experience was, oh, my God, I got a job at Surfer Magazine. This is unbelievable. Like, it was like having a baby or something. You know what I mean? Not that I've ever had a baby. Tell me, was what was the feeling like for you when you found out that you'd been hired as associate editor at Surfer Magazine? You know, it must be the same for everybody that gets a job there. I can't imagine that it isn't because it really is the pinnacle of of, of the media in, in our world. And and so getting a job there is is just the best thing that could be possible. And when I when I got offered the job, uh, it was sort of like wanting you know I was still young enough to think that it was like with a girl you don't want to pretend like you're too interested in them when you're really dying to like date them. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of like don't you know don't talk to them very Hard much, to get. right? Hard, you know. And so I was driving home, and the first thing I'm doing is I'm just laughing, going, "My God, they're going to pay me to do this? Doesn't know I'm going to do this for free if he just asked me." And then it struck me because it was a Friday and I told him that I would let him know on Monday. And then it, it dawned on me, oh, my God, what if somebody else comes in and gets the job? So all weekend I was stressing, right? Like I was waiting for it to be 9 o'clock in the morning so I could call the office, you know, on Monday morning and make sure that I still had the gig, you know. And, uh, no, it felt – I, I kind of described it as like almost like pulling the sword out of the stone, you know. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you have this this – crown on your head and and that's an interesting thing too because it was the first time in my life anyway that I'd been in a position of so much power yeah and surfer at that time in 1978 yeah. i mean who you put on the cover who you oh, interviewed right. as the surfer interview was like playboy yeah. you know the surfer interview literally made your career and and so it was you know it was a real uh, eye-opener to me about Were you aware that. of that power or did you just go into it a little bit naive and kind of like on the job go, oh, wow, you know, the publisher is kind of pushing me this way and the ad people are pushing me this way. and I'd really rather do this person over here. But so were you, because that was my experience that I, I think I was naive about it until like the day I left when I went, oh, shit, I had all that power. I should have done something good. Well, you know, the the other thing is that there were fewer of us then. It was really a small staff. There was Who was on the staff? So Pez, when I started, Pez was the editor and publisher, and I was the associate editor. And when I first started, it was Guy Motil who was the photo editor. And he had come out of the dark room. Uh, he was working in the dark room and had and become editor. And he left fairly, fairly soon thereafter. And I talked Pez into getting Brewer as the photo editor because – Having been a reader of Surfer, you know, voraciously for my whole life, I just thought that Art was the only guy that could do that. And Pez was reluctant just because he goes, oh, Art's a bear, Jim. <laughs> and I go, oh, so what? I can handle him? Little did I know. <laughs> so the funny thing about it is, is that Art and I had a really contentious relationship that I think made the magazine a lot better. I think too often you get people who are, you know, that get along really well and they, and they all agree too easily. And what happens is, is that you don't get this kind of, I don't know how to describe it, but I know that if I'd always gotten my way, the magazine would not have been nearly as good. And I know that when I 
one in our arguments with, with Art that he knows that the magazine was better for it too and that Pez was kind of the referee and kind of – and then very quickly uh, because well, – Wait a minute. I want to – I'm interested in this because <laughs> this friction between the editor and the photo editor, I'm imagining there was a lot of friction regarding – or a lot of the friction that you talk about occurred around the cover shot. For sure. Yeah. No question. And and because it was so important. Yeah. You know, the the, the cover was I mean, I can't describe there, there isn't anything else like that now. You know, there, there isn't was a anything cover, like and that. And I think you were the editor at the time. And it was something like it had like four shots on it. Like maybe like a girl and maybe like a lineup or something and do you remember the cover that I'm speaking of? And it wasn't your traditional cover at all. Right. And I'm imagining that it caused some issue inside the, the magazine offices. There's, there's, there's two great cover kind of stories that I could relate. Um, one of them was uh, the cover that we actually won a giant award on. And I had come in with all of my sassiness and, and naivete, naivete and uh, said, I think we should do – a white cover like the Beatles album and just have the surfer embossed, you know, on the, on the cover, but all white. And our art director wasn't going for it. He just wasn't going to. Who was the art director? So his name was Hyatt Moore. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. And Hyatt was a really great art director. I mean, I loved his stuff. We got along fabulously, all of us. We yeah. all, we all worked together it really well, but he just wasn't having it, you know, and I couldn't convince him. And so, um, you know, so I finally just threw up my hands and I said, so Art, what do you think should be on the cover? And he had the, the cover, we had the cover cut out with the, with the logo on it. And Art took the shot out and he just dropped it onto the, uh, as a slide. Right. And we all just stood there looking at it for about 10 seconds. And finally we just all kind of almost in uniform said, that's it. And, and that became the slide, the slide photo yeah, of Mark that, Richards. Okay, it was MR, right? It was yeah. MR and it said strenuous theater on it. Right. And, and the thing is, it was the very, it, it became so commonplace so quickly that it's hard to convince people that we were the first people to ever do it, but we won an award yeah. um, for that issue cool. and uh, with California Arts Magazine, which yeah. was the prestigious kind of publication magazine then. And so that was that was a cool one, and that was kind of a collective kind of we have this idea, but it's not quite right, and then you know we kind of all come. The other one was when uh, the owner of of Surfer um, he hired Kent Brownridge, who was the dis- the, the, the distribution or circulation director for Rolling Stone. And Rolling Stone had, you know, become this gigantic magazine, super successful. And, of course, everyone thinks when something like that happens, it's the people working in it that make that happen. Just like everybody thought that, you know, that was all the great sales guys at Surfer when actually all we did was take orders. At a certain point, there was just so much demand to be in Surfer. Yeah. You didn't really have to be that great. I'm not taking anything away from the sales guys, Important. but but <laughs> – you know, there yeah. was just a lot of demand. And in the same way with Rolling Stone, it was like all of a sudden there were millions of kids who wanted to read the magazine. It wasn't his brilliance. So anyway, I got this call from the owner of the company, which is always a bad sign. Yep. said, Jim, can you come into my office? And I go in and there's Kent Brownridge with him. And they've got magazines all around. And he said, I think you should, you know, you should listen to what Kent has to say. He's got some things, some thoughts about this. And so I was all ears, you know. And uh, and he said, well, there's just some things that, like, you know, you guys probably don't understand. And I said – and he was really an arrogant bastard, just one of those people that, 
you know, had, had an arrogance about him. And, and so I, I said, well, like, like what? And he picked up this cover of Mark Richards once again in his silver wetsuit with a green background and the caption underneath it said, is MR unstoppable? Question mark. And he picked up this issue and he said, like, for instance, green just doesn't sell. And he threw the magazine onto the floor. And it was like all I could do to like leap over the table and strangle him, right? Like I just wanted to like take his neck and just snap it. And and uh, and I said, gosh, okay. And uh, and then I, I, I faked. I said, I, could I use the bathroom? And I raced upstairs to the mezzanine that you know well in Surfer Magazine, the huge yeah. mezzanine up there, which is where all the circulation was then. Oh, and I went to the circulation girl and I said, could you uh, – could you run a report for me about what like the last 12 issues sold best? She said, sure. All I have to do is hit a button to do that. I said, well, run it for me really quick. And then I did run down to the bathroom. And when I came back up, she gave me it. And sure enough, that was the best-selling issue of the last 12 months. <laughs> right? So I peeled the, the this things off of it like when those old machines, right, that you had in those days and peeled off the size to it and folded it back and went back into the room. And I said, you know, I just wanted you to know that like that issue was the best-selling issue. And right away, Brown starts like, you know, well, I didn't actually say that it was – that it didn't – I said, no, you said that green doesn't sell. And I'm telling you that that magazine right there that you threw on the floor with a four-time world champ on it was the best-selling issue of the year. Yeah. And then, you know, we talked and then we left and the next week, Brownridge wasn't there. <laughs> what about more with art, though? I'm interested in the friction that created this, these great covers. Well, like, you know. Was, was there a certain aesthetic <laughs> that art was more known for that, like, like just – I don't know, you know, like, because Art's a legendary, brilliant surf photographer, perhaps, you know, one of the Mount Rushmore's, if not the very first one you put on there. Yeah. And, you know, Art has so many different um, qualities. You know, he's a colorist um, and he's, uh, you know, he studied photog- photographic. He would read every magazine and he would come up with all these ideas not always totally original, which no one has, but that were taken from other great photographers. You know, he he's, he was a student of photography where I think most of the surf photographers were just like, you know, get in the water, jaws of death, fire away, you know, yeah. hope you get a, a yeah. cover, you know. Yeah. And Art was adept at like a, a range of lenses. Yeah. So he could shoot with a 1,000, he could shoot with a 600, a 300, a fisheye, you know, a, you know, a, a 30 – you know, everything that there was, art was pretty proficient, if not great at. And and so... And still is. Right. And still is, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and so, I mean, art could get in the water. Yeah. You know, art could shoot from the top of the cliff. And and he had a great eye for, uh, for things. But he also had a lot of real interesting treatments to photos. So he would put a, a, a shot on a clipboard... And we'd use that on a cover or yeah. we'd put it with, you know, pinned to a wall or we'd put the slide, you know, we'd the slide. Yeah. There were just a lot of different really, really creative things. And in general, I was – I couldn't be, you know, happier with, with that. And I mean, when I say we fought, it was, you know – it I think it was more like tension, like friction. That <coughs> exactly. Was a positive dynamic. Especially, especially because I was always trying to put um, a, a cover shot on that related to an article – 
right. in the issue right. because that was how I saw it. And I had, a, I had from the very beginning a sense of like, you know, the, the, the commercial need that right. when you did that, you sold more issues. Right. You know, art was in a kind of pure art right. place. Yeah. And so and that much, was a friction. how much pressure did the ad department have over you guys at the time? Because when I worked there, <clears throat> you know, there was obviously um, a lot of, push and pull between the ad department and the edit department. We were, we were church and state, man. I mean, they would never have even, even dreamed of, of doing Pesman? that. Pesman never. Chime in? No, Pesman is actually a purist yeah. in the, in, in the, uh, for better or for worse. I mean, you can I take that. Better, that I agree. I know, you know? Steve well, and you're right. I can see um, how he would just be like, look, church and state separate. Yeah. He never once, um, interfered with, are, are picked nor did anybody else. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know that began to change as the pre- what happened, and this is something else that's, that's like kind of um, why that period was so that had so much power is when we started, we were you know we were a ten million dollar company, and Quicksilver and Billabong and and Gotcha and so forth were like twenty five million dollar companies. You know, ten years later. It was like we were a twenty-five million dollar company, and they were a two hundred fifty million dollar company. Yeah. So the 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 power shifted to the brands. Right. And ultimately, I think that's part of what really actually was damaging to the surf culture. To be honest with you, yeah. and I didn't I didn't really know that until I left I left that whole world and realized that like when I wanted to get my kids. Quicksilver stuff that I was actually telling them that they couldn't be cool unless they had this little thingy on their yeah. shirt. And I was thinking, what kind of an idiot am I? Like that doesn't make you cool, what, you know? What was the um, what was the office culture then like back then at Surfer? Because I know you know I've heard stories from from whoever guys that used to work there that you know. But I mean, you know, I've heard about joints being smoked in the dark room. Um, Crazy parties. Look, this was the '80s. You know, like was was it loosey goosey? It was definitely different than any corporate culture you'd ever find today. <laughs> I can tell you. Yeah. Um, no, I mean we. I mean we literally would determine. You know, for the surfer pool parties, we would like we had a line item. You know, for for drugs. <laughs> And and who got what? Oh well, he gets two bindles. You know? I apologize for laughing. It's actually not funny, but it's kind of it's it's, it's hilarious. Not, as I look I'm, back. I don't on condone drugs. No, no, at all. nor do I. But it was the uh, but it was the time. Yeah, it was exactly. just the time. Right. You know, and and everything was like that. I mean, it, it, and everybody was like that. It wasn't as if we were the only people. We were actually pretty tame, you know, compared to what was going on out there in the rest of the world. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it was the you know it, it, it was, compared to Rolling Stone, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, so so uh, no, we we uh, we had lots of dark room dark room parties and and lots of uh, and lots of surf checks. Yeah, Pez yeah. always used to say three surf checks is worth one go out. And I would say no, it isn't. But uh, but but you know we we I mean, we went surfing when the surf was good. That was for sure. I, I mean there was no no question that nobody would. And I was probably you know Art was Art would shoot, but he wasn't surfing really that much. And Pez was not surfing really a lot. But 
myself and and Tom Survey, yeah. you know anybody who was who was active surfing, you just went surfing when the surf was good, and you you made up your work some other time, and maybe that was working till midnight or, you know, wor- yeah. you know working three days straight in a row after the, the swell was gone. But that's just how it was, and and I don't regret it at all. In fact, it's it's made me really a, a believer in the idea that that's the best way to work. Yeah, you know. Yeah, we were sort of. Working pandemic style before there was a pandemic. I remember the one of the f- something that sticks out to me when I first got the job there was you know, Rob Gilly pulled me aside. He goes, "Hey, I just want you to know that that it's eleven minutes from here to the lowers parking lot, and and suiting up and in the water will take you seventeen minutes. So you can get in a solid thirty five minutes and be back here within an hour." Like he had it down to a minute. You know what I mean? And I was like, "Oh, I think I might have chosen the right place to work." Yeah. I've got a quote for you. I want to read it and I want you to get your thoughts. Surf culture and therefore surf magazine, surf media were always enthusiast based inflow and outflow of ideas and images and the sharing and acknowledging of cultural norms were through a prism of the people that partook in the culture. The media wasn't aspirational. The culture wasn't aspirational. There was a genuine surfers as outliers vibe that ironically probably grew the sport and eventually uh, into something that was very unique. And well, the mainstream, because of this, the mainstream was drawn to and intrigued by these guys and gals that rode waves and partook in this lifestyle. Comment on that? It's funny that people didn't in the end, recognize the absolute truth of that. There is absolutely not one false word in that whole statement, and and it's what not only made it not only made all of the people attracted to it. It also supported the magazine. It was the easiest place to build a brand there ever was. You could run ads in Surfer Magazine for a year, and you were and you were a legitimate brand because you couldn't run them in there. If you weren't legit, right, it just kind of didn't work, and everybody knew it. It was such an insular crew, and yet so. Uh, and the culture. When you say crew, it was like the whole culture was like yeah. if you knew, you knew, and if you didn't, you didn't, and you weren't allowed in. And 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 there was there wasn't any kind of arrogance about that. It was mm-hmm. it was about commitment, authenticity. Yeah, and authenticity came with commitment. If you didn't surf, if you didn't see people in the water, and you saw people in the water, people used to say to me all the time, you know, they they somebody would. I, I remember overhearing this and and somebody saying, you know, I never see Kempton, you know, at Rincon. They go, yeah, but man, every time I go there, he's at, he, he's at Lowers. Yeah. And that was just the kind of thing. And the same with me. I knew guys that, you know, you only had to see them, but you knew they were surfing where their spot was. Yeah. And, and they were into it. And you kind of knew everybody. It's really weird. Even even though there were, I'm sure, many, many more surfers than you could possibly know, you yeah. felt like you knew every surfer there was, not because there were so few, but just because you knew a surfer. And still today, you know, you know this. You can talk to someone for five minutes and know exactly how much they know about surfing. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. it's like somebody, it's like me trying to talk about, you know, uh, uh, Nigeria. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I know, I know a few, I, I know a few things about <laughs> Nigeria, but I would not be dumb enough to like open my mouth about it, you know? <clears throat> um, another comment that, that you <clears throat> sometimes hear or see floating around, which I think is interesting, which is the beginning of the end of surfing, if there is such a thing, the beginning of the end of surfing was, when Gidget came out, Gidget the movie, 
What are your thoughts on that? So I think it's all, it all depends. Everything is your baseline. So that was certainly true of a baseline for people who had surfed relatively uncrowded waves in in a relatively unknown um, culture up until then, because it exploded the culture. But people make the mistake of thinking that that was the only reason that that happened. The reality is, is the same year that Gidget came out, foam came out. And all of a sudden, all that pinup demand that used to take you a week to to, to you know carve up a wooden board, you could make a hundred boards in the which same cost, amount of which? time. Well, no, I mean the, the, they wanted to. There was demand out there, so people like Hobie and Dave I mean, Sweet. Did the, the, the demand for a, a board that's easier to manufacture was it pushed over the tipping point by Gidget, or is that just a a non-starter comment? I think what it was is there was enough demand there so that there was the, there was that they knew they had to find they knew they had to find foam and and the and the part of that was they were using balsa and balsa was running out. What happened is after the war they had warehouses full of balsa for the for the arrow for the for the arrow space. They were yeah. building bombers with wooden wings yeah. that they were using balsa. So when the war ended kind of suddenly, they had warehouses full of them. And everybody from Greg Newell, you know, to Bing, to especially the South Bay guys, but even the Gordon and Smith, they and, all and were getting uh, The listeners might might not know, but the manufacturing base for the for the airplanes was in the South Bay where all of these surfboard manufacturers. Exactly. Yeah. So So that was running out. And going to Peru to get your materials was kind of a daunting kind of thought. So everyone knew they were they were struggling to come up with some other way to deal with it. And they were getting this increased demand, even though it was not at the level that happened after Gidget. They, they had way more demand than they could possibly serve trying to make boards out of wood. So, Do you think that they looked to the aerospace industry once again? Because, I mean, they got – they must have been, well, the airplanes are now being made out of this foam stuff, you know? like. Well, those guys actually brought it to Hobie. A, a salesman brought a foam, a particular foam, to Hobie and showed it to him. And Hobie was skeptical of it, and he took it in, and he did tests on it because all the other kind of foams that they tried to use, the, the resin would, yeah, would just eat it up, yeah. right? They couldn't use it. And so once he knew that that was workable then basically he brought in gordon who you know who had who who had a degree in chemistry from you know from the claremont colleges and was a genius and they figured out how to make this thing grubby clark Clark. yeah Yeah. grubby gordon clark and and so together those guys kind of went off and and did a did did a a secret mission so to speak on on trying to figure out how to make the the right blow foam that would be right and dave sweet was doing the same thing so i mean you know as as with everything with the wright brothers and 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 the french guy that you know that flew the first planes no nobody usually is ever exactly first and no one really knows exactly what that was but when you have a demand, you want to fly or you, or, or you want to make lots of surfboards. When there's a demand there, yeah. like peop, great minds are thinking alike everywhere, you know. Yeah. Um, you know so Dave Sweet was had a foam thing going in his, in his head. He was trying to perfect it or come up with the first one. Yeah. And we know Hobie and Grubby were 
were, were mixing it up. Right. And and the thing with Grebby is he was a good businessman as well as a, as, as a good scientist. So basically, he was he just did better business. It wasn't that he that that his was so superior. It ended up being that because once he kind of pushed the competition to the side, he had time to develop and improve as it went along, but really the 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 foam that we're using is today that 80% of the of, of the surfboards are made is not very different from the foam they were using in 1958 1957 yeah. Yeah. so so anyway that the i guess the the question about gidget is yeah. what gidget did then is give all your 9 year olds i was 9 when i saw gidget yeah and that it gave you it gave all those kids inspiration inspiration yeah. and the, and 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 that's part of the the whole surf industry story too because we saw Gidget, and that made us want to go surfing and get surfboards. But the ending of the story was highly unsatisfactory because at the end of Gidget, you know, the the, she, the kid goes quits. back to she quits. The kids go the, the kid goes back to college, and the and the big Kahuna goes back and gets a suit and tie to be an airline pilot, right? And we were That's going. Bullshit. And we were going. Wait a minute. We've already we've already been to college. Number one. Number two. We're not wearing a suit and tie if it kills us, right? Plus the and, surf's and the be girl. And, and the girl is what we're half of us are coming here for anyway, right? And so we kind of willed. I feel we willed the surf industry into existence by the fact that we wanted to have a way to make a living that was respectable. Not dealing drugs or or being a beach bum, but that was a respectable way of of making a living while we could still surf all the time, and that the surf industry. When you say, you, are you speaking about um, the creation of the surf industry? You mean like like the the South Bay manufacturing base of Noel and Yader and or not uh, Jacobs and I'm talking beyond Bing. the hard goods. I'm okay. talking beyond beyond. So you're beyond talking the like wars. the late '70s. I'm talking about the later '70s right. that, when that when that actually came in the right. Ocean Pacifics and the and, right. and the Hangtons and the right. and and the Beachcomber Bills and the and the sunglasses and the hats and the, I mean all the stuff that was just a bunch of guys like you going. We've got to figure out a way so that we can surf exactly and make a living doing this exactly. And let's create this thing. But it wasn't like um, you guys all like came together and went, "Hey, you guys, we're gonna have to wear suits and ties in a cubicle. Let's not do that. Let's do this." Like it wasn't as no. obviously it wasn't as no it, thought it, out it, as that. It was just sort of organic and fluid, and it happened. And and that's what that's what made it so attractive to other people too. You know, I mean, to to that to that larger audience is that contrary to most American business, you know, the surf business was cooperative. People wanted other people to be successful because it indicated that they could be successful too. Right. And so they were happy. They were happy to see other people succeed. They weren't trying to eliminate their competition. They were trying to grow it because they were trying to grow the whole pie to make this a real thing, you know? And so everybody was, everybody was like supportive. Right. And, and that in itself, Kind of exploded. It, it, it kept it from like you know it becoming an oligarchy in in a in a very short time, which so many you know businesses end up doing. You have Apple and and you know yeah. what I mean. All of a sudden, you got three people, and that's it. Yeah. Everybody else has been wiped out or bought out. Yeah. That wasn't how it happened. The surf industry was like everybody wanted to make it, and and so it was okay. Yeah, everybody was happy to do that. Um, there wasn't an aspiration to be to own the industry because we didn't even know what that was. What about this comment? That the surf industry was initially funded by drugs. Well, 
I mean, the reality is, is that it was one of the only, it was one of the only ways to get capital for people who were completely untested. And unbankable. And unbankable. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't go to a bank and say, I have this idea. Can you give me $20,000? But guys who were trying to get rid of their, their stacks of cash were certainly willing to put that money into something they could thought they could turn it into legit. And in fact, at a certain point, most of them wanted to get out of it anyway. Yeah, right. You know, so I don't think it was so much that they, that, that it was, it, it, it was, it, again, it wasn't any, any conscious issue. It was, I need money and I don't care where you got that. I'm not asking any questions, but if you can put $20,000 down in my business, I'm ready to roll with you and I'll give you X amount of it, you know? And it was just one of the very few places you could actually raise capital. So you think that that statement is a valid statement? I mean, look, look, I know there were some companies that actually got banked, you know, they got loans, legit loans, but to a degree, there was the surf industry, especially during that period, right? When Coke and pot was going through the roof. The late 70s, or let's say mid-70s, there was companies that, frankly, were funded by illicit gains through the... Yeah. Yeah. And and the, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to even know if the owners of the companies knew it or not. They didn't care. There was a sort of a don't ask, don't tell, you know. Well, the was, reason it, I bring it up is because <laughs> I, I was like, you know what? I want to ask Jim, like, what are some of the most under untold, what are the best untold stories in surf? And sometimes I think that maybe that's an un, that's a, a story that could be excavated and told. And then I think that's kind of boring. I mean, we just kind of told it, really. Like right. people needed capital and they got capital. And it's an age-old story, too, you know. So yeah. what are some stories that need to be told that haven't been told? And most of them are stories that might even be a little prickly for you and I to, to, to throw out here, you know. Like we don't want to – you know what I mean? We don't want to – we don't want to break any bridges or – Hurt any feelings, you know? But it seems like the drug one is one um, that at some point could be told when enough people pass away. I guess. I think that's. I think that's actually the 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 truth of the matter is is that every time that's been tried to be done, it has it has had such a negative con- like yeah. response to whoever is doing it. Yeah. But what I would. But what I would. I, I think what's worthwhile noting is that that drugs for the most part until much later when the kind of professionals took it over that drugs were drugs were were sold and distributed and even manufactured to an extent a lot of times by people who were relatively uh, naive about it especially about the damage and were and were oftentimes real visionaries or or um um they, they were doing it for all these utopian reasons they thought were good. Ideals. Yeah, uh, utopian ideals. They were they were they were utopians, and and so that went right hand in that went hand in glove with surf with surfing. Yeah. surfers were that way. Yeah. So there was this natural affinity. Um, and the other thing, and I'll just tell you this story because I think it's it's one that I uh, when I say story this this theory that I have, and it's about it, it, and it's why I think that that affinity is there is that. People are always putting surfing down for being uh, Spicoli-like, and that surfers are are you know dopers, and surfers are are you know they they they're they're dummies, and they and and look at how they talk. 
and they're usually talking about what surfers talk like when they're talking about surfing, you know. And what I've come to believe is that if you look at what waves are, they're, they're the transmission of energy, all energy. So light waves, heat waves. Right now, we've got radio waves, um, X-rays, all moving right through us right now. We don't even know. We don't even feel them. We don't see them. But, ev- I, but all I energy. I see them. I see them, and I know they're there. <laughs> all I energy, speak to them. Go ahead. Right? All energy move in the, in the whole universe moves through waves. But the only place that human beings actually, actually experience that is on an ocean wave or a, or a wave of water that they ride. And that that is completely different from all the other parts of the rush that surfing has and other sports do too. But it's not the fall line. It's not the gravity. You know, it's it's not the speed rush. It's also the fact that while you're doing all of that, you're on this moving wave of energy that no water is moving at all. You're you know, it's this energy is rushing across this whole place, breaking, and you're in the middle of it. And so when you you do that for a couple of hours, and you step off onto the land. And we call it stoke or whatever. But when somebody asks you about it, you're you're speechless. It's totally inexplicable. And you sound like an idiot if you try to explain to them what you are feeling. And what I want to say about that is that's not stupidity. That's freaking nirvana. That's like like cosmic (laughs) relationship that you just experienced. How can you possibly put that into the mundaneness of English, you know? That is really, really well done because I, I often throw up in my mouth a little bit when people go, oh, surfing's spiritual. And frankly, it is. It is spiritual. And I'm not vomiting in my mouth because of that. I think I'm vomiting in my mouth because people are trying to capture it and you can't capture it. You know, it's just yeah. well, well stated. So that's my only explanation. Maybe. I like it. <laughs> uh, Let me but, ask you but I, so, but, but just to finish, I, I think that, that, you know, the the idea of of that that sense of of that the 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 euphoria that comes with that is obviously similar to drugs and that that aligns people of the same nature to do to go out there and find this and they're looking for it so while all surfers are not not in any way connected to drugs whatsoever, nor do they need to be, there there's an affinity between the two that just is 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 this idea that we're searching for nirvana via um, drugs maybe over here. I think the secret is is that surfers have found it. Yeah, if they would just open their eyes and kind of be in the present and not be thinking about everything else that's going on in their life, they can be in the present. Exactly. I think that's really one of the key things because surfing. <clears throat> When you're actually paddling for the wave and going to catch it and riding it, you are very, very present. You, you have to be. You can't be thinking about your 401k. No. You've got to be. You know. No, yeah. there is. It is truly a, a Zen moment, and yeah. in that in that sense, that all of your senses are focused, and and everything else is 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 pushed away. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you catch waves you don't even remember. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like you, like, like you kick out and you can't, you can't, can't process it. it. Yeah, you know, especially if it's someplace where it's big or it's challenging. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of like you, 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 all you remember are the physical, you know, yeah, the memory didn't have time to, yeah, put it all together. Yeah. Okay, here's we're gonna go a little different here. I want to, I want you to uh, comment on this. 
unique, self-centered, self-seeking, charismatic, inspiring, charming, but also dark, shadowy, untrustworthy, a societal outlier, on the fringe, but eventually accepted, even revered, but also bankrupt of sincerity. Am I talking about Mickey Dora or surf culture from Gidget to, to the present day? Well, that certainly fits. Some of that fits all surfers. And all of it fits some surfers. <laughs> um, and Mickey, it certainly fits all. Um, you know, but, but you know, Mickey was a, a really, really outlier of his own, even within the surfing world, by a mile in my mind. And, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I certainly didn't spend as much time as some, but I spent a, a lot more time than 90% of the people who talk about him. And I lived with him in France. Um, you know, I I, uh, I I stole his girlfriend. You know, who lived with us, and we ran off together, which didn't set well. Really? How, and, how uh, did that go down? Well, yeah, well, it didn't go down well. Tell me down well. So, how well, did you end up living with Dora in France? Did he knock on your door, or did you knock on his? Door? Well, you can probably guess the question. <laughs> he knocked that. on your door. <laughs> it was like you know, it was it was using using the house for free, right. you know, and living in the van so he could make a quick getaway in case a gendarme showed up. And were you <laughs> were you um, like, oh my God, Mickey Dora? Of course you can stay here. Was there like a sense of surf stardom? Yeah, you, you can't help but it. But it, but it, but uh, again, that that's the interesting thing about all about all people is that when you when when you get close to people, they become they they normalize, and all of that falls away. And what you do is look at 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 what people are really like. Are they are they kind? Are they generous? Are are they are are they arrogant? Are they uh, um, are they intelligent? You know, and so you have all these things, some you like, some you don't. But quickly on, I mean, you know, th- I tell people all the time, if you really like Mickey Dora, you never met the guy. Yeah. Fact. You yeah. won't find anyone who really knows Mickey well yeah. who will say, I just love Mickey. He was the greatest guy in the world. Yeah. There is nobody that spent a lot of time with Mickey that knew that. And the reason is that it isn't so much that Mickey – stole or that Mickey screwed people, it was that he did it to his friends. Yeah. He did it to the people who helped him. Yeah. Not not just the people who were dummies. Why the reverence for Mickey Dora? Because uh, my initial question when I asked, when I I threw out sort of a characterization through these words and and phrases that I just gave you, um, it's my feeling, and I could be wrong, that... In many ways, the caricature that is Mickey Dora, those things that I mentioned, sort of fits right on top of what surfing was and has now become. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm. Maybe it's a reach. But why the reverence for Mickey Dora? Because, and I, and I think it's because he does actually, he is sort of emblematic of what we've become. And maybe I'm being pessimistic here. I don't know. It's your, it's your podcast. You should talk on this. I think it I think part of it is and this is perhaps not uniquely American but certainly American we love we love our outlaws. We 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 what did you what, what did you say we we revere them. Reverence, yeah. Right? I mean Jesse James, 
guy was a cold-blooded killer and he was and 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 he you know he he just never gave up the civil war and continued to be you know a guy who went around shooting people and taking money but there was there was this sense that he was getting away with it that we, we love that we love that in this yeah. country i don't know why exactly but there's no question that that being a bad boy and getting away with it is something that Americans tend to uh, idolize. It's for, so let's excavate <clears throat> that because my brain takes me to, well, that, that's what we did to King George. We just kind of went gave him the finger and we were sort of the outlaws to England. And maybe there's, maybe there's some truth. Maybe that's part of it. Well, it's absolutely part of it. And, you know, we all have been fed this myth about our own country. But really, those guys just didn't want to have to pay anybody else. And they wanted to take advantage of something they had here and not really – like be lo- loyal to any more than people who don't want to pay taxes now here. Yeah. Like nobody likes to pay taxes, but they were willing to like have a war over it, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I might add, there was with it and with Texas and, and with the whole South, the idea that, and we don't want the British telling us that we can't have slaves. Yeah. Cause we're making a boatload of money with free, with, with free labor. So, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not here. You know, one of the things I always say is criticizing my country is only a, a you know is only because I love it and I want it to live up to what it is, yeah. not because I think it's a horrible place and and that it's you know that 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 we're all bad guys. But I think if you can't accept that some of that was where we are, then we really don't know where we've come from and yeah, how we're going to get get yeah. there. You know, yeah. and and so you know our 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 country was was built on people who are willing to get on a boat, you know, sail 3,000 miles and, you know, take a chance on dying just to get someplace into a wilderness where they were going to have to fight hostile other people to get what they wanted to get. So the idea of being... Of of being determined, and arrogant, and and selfish, and and greedy, Mickey and Dora, and all, you know, they, they, I mean, there are plenty of Mickey Doras that would that came here. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, Mickey's an interesting character, and I I just I find I think that that the surf culture in general that we and I'll say we that that he's sort of um, he's kind of like the guy that we all maybe I don't know. If, I don't know. It's hard for me to put a finger on it, but I'm I'm constantly fascinated by why we're fascinated by Mickey Dora, and I think you explained it actually pretty well. Where did you? Wait, I just have to ask you. Yeah. Where did you get these? These aren't you. Did you write these? Yeah. Jesus Christ! Oh, excuse me, on a mic. Hey, but... no. People call me Jesus all the time. <laughs> <laughs> or at least, or at least, Boana. No, you know? no, no. What are those? Your... No, those were fabulous, man. I, mean, I was looking at it. And I was thinking. I was I was trying to think who wrote this. Yeah, <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> hey, uh, so what are your thoughts on professional surfing in the year twenty twenty one? I mean, you were there um, from s- sort of like pro surfing two point when when Ian and PT and those guys got sort of the Australian leg going and sort of brought that to Fred and Randy and said, "Hey, look, we're doing this. You guys should probably do it too. You can take our our you know uh, our paradigm here and add to it if you wish." Um, and you were right there for that in the early, the mid seventies through, uh, that busting down the door era. And, and you've seen just as I have, uh, pro surfing and Alton iterations, uh, up to this time. And now, you know, we just, I don't know. Did you watch the Lamore event last weekend? Okay. So you watched the Lamore event. Um, it was fascinating on many different levels. Um, what are your thoughts on professional surfing in the year 2021, where we are, where, where maybe we're going? Yeah. Well, once again, like we were talking about the attraction of surfing, 
is I have I have I, I have nothing against professional surfing whatsoever, and certainly um, an unbelievable respect for the guys that are doing it because they are, without question, at least at this stage, for the most part, the best surfers in the world, um, and they are the best surfers in the world because they work at it the hardest, right? There are surfers that have chosen not to do that who are as good. And funnily enough, I feel like they are actually, in in many cases, m- more effective as as icons to the general surfing population. And it's because nobody, in my opinion, ever starts surfing so that they can become a professional surfer. They get on a board and they feel that rush I was describing, and they love it, and they can't get enough of it, and they get and they get literally addicted to it. it it's a it's a terrible word to use because we use it with drugs when you can't get off of something. But we we are so driven to to feel that again that we do it all. We just want to do it all the time, and that it's the freedom of that. And I think most people don't. I think most people go surfing because they don't want to wear a uniform and they don't want to have a number on their chest and they don't want to be judged by other people or have a coach screaming at them or having to show up at an exact time to go surfing. That it's all the opposite of that that is so attractive to people. And and I've I've always believed that the most successful contests were the ones where really the outcome of the single winner was not the point and certainly not what everybody came for. It was the gathering of the tribe and the experience that everybody had in those early contests. And that was one of the things that fell apart in 72 in those early contests. Like 19, I went to the, to, to the world championships in San Diego in 1966 and, you know, Duke Hanamoku was there, yeah. you know, and, and all of the, all of the champions that you'd seen in, in serving from all over the world had come and it was it was a giant party, and that was what just like the Makaha International was. Does anybody remember who won those contests? I mean, barely. I mean, we remember '66 because Nat won, and that was and that was a watershed moment. But it wasn't like like <laughs> I think Midget won one of the Buffalo or one of the Makaha invitations. He did. Yeah, he did. But I'm talking about the '66 contest. I know, but you, when you oh, said that, I'm, I'm like, look, God, do I remember yeah. who won the Makaha? Exactly. Exactly. No, no one does. And, and because it was, because that wasn't the point of them. Right. The point of them was that we were all here and, yeah. and it was this giant tribe. And tribe is a really accurate word, in my opinion, about us because, you know, while we may not dress according to the society, we all dress the same pretty much as the tribe. We all wear the same feathers and, and, and ride the same horses the same way. And, and somebody innovates a better way to ride the horse and, or to kill the buffalo. And that's what we do, you know. Yeah. Um, and we follow those guys who are the, the wildest and the bravest and the, and the smartest at doing what's good uh, as the tribe defines it. Mickey Dora. You know, yeah. We follow Mickey Dora. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and, and again, uh, that's part of it too, is nobody, nobody rode with a kind of, you know, uh, aplomb. elegance, yeah. and aplomb that, that, that Mickey did. Yeah. So there was just something about that, that is a, that, that everyone loves, you know, b- yeah. you know, it was the, it was the bullfighter attraction, you yeah. know, that, that, you know, just, just, you know, horns grazing kind of thing that, yeah, he <clears> was <throat> almost like a ballroom dancer in some ways, like, yeah. but, but with spark, you know, like. Anyway, yeah, going too far down the rabbit hole with Mickey, but no, no, uh, but but pro it, surfing, but pro surfing, I think 
you know, again, pro surfing in the same way the industry was willed into existence, I think was willed into existence by a bunch of guys who were so good that felt like they were that 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 they that they should be accorded pay for 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 committing their entire lives to excellence in the water and and that it was no longer good enough to get a trophy you know for spending your entire life and uh, an ongoing life doing it that these guys wanted to be paid to do it and if we could find a way then we would i think what's what's changed particularly with the wave pool and you were you know you were you 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 asked about lamore yeah. and one of the things that i see about the wave pool now that i think is really um um a change is that when you make the same way for everyone to ride you you accomplish something positive in that you, you know every everyone's being judged more objectively but you also take away all the elements of of the ocean surfing that are also super attractive like wave judgment and paddling power and wave knowledge and reading the particular wave you're on all which are hard because they're subjective but also all what makes surfing so attractive to people and to me what I'm watching when I'm watching a wave pool is I'm watching a gymnastics contest where the bar is the same bar. So everybody does everything exactly the same. And then they do their flip and it's how they stick their landing. And if you think about it now, the big, the big move that gets all the points is the air. And if your wave is the same every time, it's going to be sticking that move and who it isn't about just doing it. It's about how you can land it, how you stick it. And that turns it into, in my mind, like diving or gymnastics. Yeah. And and that's fine. And, I mean, I love it. But I don't think that that's what people start surfing for nor what they're going to buy product because of or follow anyone for or any of that. Now, it may be that we know. But, you know, outside of the Olympics, when does anybody go to a gymnastics Event. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been to one lately. Right? You know, do you go to a to a diving you know no. competition, like? <laughs> but curling. But, but really, if you think about it, everything yeah. about a dive, they do the double flip. Yeah, you know, yeah. but it's all about the entry. Yeah, it's all about how little splash. That's really the difference between a nine and a ten. Exactly, is that? Yeah, right. And and so that comes down to this thing where it's just like you've taken away this guy who like is going to win at sunset or win at Fiji or win at, at Mundaka because he knows that wave. And you know, when you, when you play those fantasy games, I mean, that's exactly how you pick people. Yeah. You pick them because, well, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm picking, you know, if you're having a, if you're having a contest at, you know, at, 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 on the gold coast and you're not picking Mick and, and, and Joel, you're out of your mind. Yeah. You know why? Because they grew up surfing that place. So that my, my thinking about it is, is that, is that competitive surfing the way that it's being developed now is is a great thing in terms of performance, but it's not the culture. The culture, in my mind, is never going to be that. And what we've seen with the collapse of the brands is a return to what I think is the much more natural culture of surfing. 
And when people say, oh, we're really going, all the kids are retro, you know, they're driving Volkswagen buses and they're driving sing, and they're riding single fins with, with, you know, with wide bases. I'm going, they're not doing that because they're, they're retro. They're driving Volkswagen buses because they can sleep in them, just like us. Yeah. They can put their board in them and lock it up. They can cook in them. Yeah. They can drive to the next place and be there. It's utilitarian. They're riding a, a single fin because they like loading up all that G-force and driving out of a turn rather than skating, you know, six times down the face. Nothing wrong with either, but they're experiencing something that they haven't experienced in a long time, and it's it's thrilling to them. It's exciting to like to like feel those 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 different things or to or, or to have those different places. And sure, there's some retro, but that's also reverence for the culture. Yeah. Of respecting what came before them and liking it and and taking elements of it and, and incorporating into their own lives. So I see the – and now the kids are – just like we did. We didn't have surf clothes, so we shopped at the thrift store. And we bought Hawaiian shirts for 50 cents you know, at the thrift store. And then OP and Hangden, they all came along and they were Hawaiian shirts and you could buy them and pay $50 for them instead. And that's fine. But now kids are back to shopping at the thrift store again. All the all the cool surf kids. Was, that's where they shop. Was it OP? Do you think was OP the first surf founded surf clothing? Or was no. there something before that? Yeah, Hang Tin was before. Quite okay. a few years actually before. Right. And, and that was and, Duke Boyd, right? And that was Duke Boyd. Yeah, yeah. And, Duke, and he was a hardcore surfer, Duke. Duke was a, d- definitely a surfer. I mean, I don't know how hardcore, but he definitely was a surfer. I mean, right. he was definitely a hardcore surfer in the sense of committed to the idea. So Hang Ten of was surfing. the first and Hang soft was the, goods designed and first one created. that would be re- like you know, there's there's I know there's Jansen and that, but that was in New York. No, no, thing. that didn't. That th- those were fashion. Those were definitely fashion. But there were um, like like there was you know. Caton, you know, Nancy Caton made, made made board shorts for, for you know, the guys. But she and, wasn't before Hank Tanner, was she? Yeah. Oh, she was before? Yeah. Well, she, I mean, in that same, same time same period, era. in, in right. like the sort of mid-60s. Right. You know, early yeah. to mid-60s. And 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 there's another one I'm trying to think of, and I can't think of it now, um, um, Birdwell. Birdwell Beach Bridges. Yeah, right. Birdwell, Birdwell were really – but they were hard to get. I mean, I didn't know where to get Birdwells. I loved them. Yeah. But I, I, I actually would buy them from other guys, and they'd yeah. give them used – pair, you yeah. know, yeah. to have. And and all of them were, were un, you know, they were all made out of materials that were not particularly comfortable. They were just cut and and triple stitched so that they wouldn't rip right. and fall apart, yeah. you know. But they were semi-uncomfortable in terms of the materials. You know, canvas and, and nylon were, like, not the easiest things to, you know, to have on your skin all day. Yeah. But but Hangton was the first one. And then when, what OP did is OP made the entire range you know they they and they and they were and they they were the first ones who got them into surf shops hang tin was never in surf shops because surfboard shops sold surfboards and you were lucky to buy a bar of wax in a surfboard shop you know in 1965 yeah like like i bought my surf my first surfboard in california after I, i i lived overseas but when i came back to california my parents bought me a surfboard in 1965 from don hansen you know he gave you a bar of wax but that was it. I mean, yeah. there were no leashes. There were no, yeah. you know, there were no, really, there were no wetsuits in 65 to speak of. Right. You know, so. Yeah. <clears throat> but, but, but um, it was Don Hansen, I believe, and um, Mike Jake Sr. that created this Ocean Pacific surf, uh, wetsuit. It was actually a surfboard line, wasn't it, before it was a. Um, it was a surfboard before line. Before it was clothing. Yeah. yeah. It was a surfboard line that I think Hansen made with. Yeah, he, with so Mike Jinx, with, with with Jim Jinx, 
Jim Jinx, excuse yeah. me, yeah, Jim Jinx. And 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 so Jinx was a salesman, and he recognized that there was this market out there. And what he'd been doing is he'd he'd, he'd been selling surfboards and things in the surf shops, and what he had done is by him talking to them and by them kind of recognizing that surfboards had a low markup and that if they could put these things in and again market conditions right they were all of us now we were 10 at Gidget you know 9 at Gidget now we're 19 yeah. at at you know at this stage and and we're completely identifying with this culture yeah. so we want something identifiable and so all of a sudden there's this there, there are these brands that are like ours it's like discovering the Beatles when you were a kid and not having to listen to Perry Como and your parents anymore. Yeah. It's like the Beatles belong to us. The Beach Boys belong to us. Yeah. Like our parents don't don't even understand this. They don't even know what this is, you know. And it was the same way with those brands initially was, you know, and, and Quicksilver was totally um, authentic. You know, it was it was more authentic because it had team riders. You know, it was always team riders were always surfboards. And all of a sudden Quicksilver had team riders that were guys that wore these these board shorts yeah, it's funny i'm thinking about the early op ads and it was <clears throat> as i think back on it it was usually guys that were in the ads were guys that owned the surf shops like i'm thinking like ed wright from sunset yeah. and bill stewart you'd see him in, in an <clears throat> op ad and so it's like this is where you can go like we'll co-op this ad with you this is where you can get the uh, the product there's a lot of that in the early absolutely OP no i remember there's a, a i have a this funny story, and I call it um, I call it board shorts, not surf trunks. And we were surfing Swamis, and you know Ed's shop was right there, yep. and and uh, just just past the realization center. And we were walking back with the guys that worked in the shop, and one of them, and I had just been to Hawaii that 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 winter, and so I'd seen Jeff Hackman, and one of them said, "God, that looks like Jeff Hackman in that car," and I looked and I go, "That is Jeff Hackman." And he had the trunk open, and he was taking these quicksilvers, quicksilvers out, right? Yeah. And he, so we rush over, and we're, you know, we shower off, we pull off our wetsuits, and we're kind of standing by the door. And, and Ed's shop, he had a, he had an office that sat up, kind of a, a, like three or four steps above the place, and it had a big plate glass window and his door, and he could look down onto the, look at the whole shop from there. And and Jeff was there, so we're kind of like huddled you know, by the side door, and Jeff comes in and he says, yeah, I got these board shorts. And and, and Ed goes, oh, those are great-looking surf trunks. He goes, no, no, they're board shorts. And he <laughs> said, okay. He said, well, they go, well, they got this snap on them. Oh, that's great. And he goes, how many do you have? And he goes, well, I, I got six right here. And he goes, no, how many do you have? He goes, well, I got three dozen in my car. And Ed says, I'll take them all. <laughs> right? So he goes out and gets them. Years and years later, when I actually met Jeff Hackman and I told him that story, he said, here's the funny part, Jim. He said, you know, we'd gone into business together, you know, McKnight and I, Bob McKnight and I, and McKnight had sent me to San Diego. And he said, you need to go to all the surf shops and you need to take like six, you know, pair into each one because there's a size range. So that was the size range, right? Yeah. One extra large, one, you know, one small, two, two mediums, two large, right? So 
He goes, so I drive to San Diego with like three dozen trunks thinking that, man, this is really – if we sell this, man, we're really on our way, you yeah. know? And he goes and – I, and I was thinking I was going to every surf shop in San Diego and he goes, I stop at the very first one and the guy takes my whole stash. <laughs> and he said, I never told McKnight, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I stayed down there for another three days and went surfing, you know? That's cool. So Adrice Sunset Surfboards was the first buyer of uh, Quicksilver yeah. on, on that Yeah, sort of- and it had a line out the door after that. Yeah. For those things. Great, great yeah. store. Good, good, fun stuff at Sunset Surfboards. Um, <clears throat> you've, we've spoke already a little bit about uh, surfing as being a spiritual, you know, act. You know, you, and you touched on it great, and we don't need to go there. Um, let me ask you this about surf travel. Do you need to take a break? No, no, I'm fine. Good. Do you think one company or one group of people should be able to be the gatekeepers to surfing spots and to the ocean. So explain that a little bit more to me so I can get a, a, well, a, a clear view of that. What I'm getting at <clears throat> is um, here in the United States, the ocean's free. You can access the ocean pretty much anywhere. And it's, it's our right as free people. Other nation states, they're, system is different um, and you have to go through people or people own the property that affronts the ocean and therefore they have the right to say, hey, you can surf here, but you have to give me money. Um, <clears throat> that's kind of what I'm getting at. And I, and I sense that as surf travel increases, as the number of surfers increases, which it already is and is going to, there's going to be more people that are like, let's go there and pay to do it, you know, which is great. I'm not, I'm not, poo-pooing that what i'm concerned about is i'm not concerned about but um wondering yeah i'm wondering will there is i guess the question is is free access to the ocean no matter what nation state you're in is it part of our when i say our i mean you and me surfers is it part of the surfers right that we should be able to access waves regardless of the nation state like do we have this sort of border-free um, waiver that allows us to get into the surf wherever it is, regardless of who owns the land that affronts it. Yeah. And I mean, I think the more free the country, the more likely that is. I mean, I remember, you know, talking to uh, when when uh, um, when um, Jenna Severson was married, you know, um, her husband um, was a windsurfer, and he windsurfed across the Bering Strait into Russia. And he was windsurfing on these waves on the coast, and the whole frickin' Russian army ended up taking him into custody because they didn't, they couldn't believe that somebody would be doing that just for fun, right, right? in the Bering Strait, yeah. you know, off Kamchatka, you yeah. know, and uh, and and now. Right there in that same place, there is actually a surf school that's that's run by Russian surfers. Really? Um, several of them women um, in in that area, and oh. you know it's it's kind of amazing. But obviously, he had just stumbled on it, and he was just having a ball, you know. So he was doing, you know, he was doing all this acrobatics, and yeah. that, you know, he was a great, you know, windsurfer, and uh, and and they arrested him. 
Sure. Because it was, it was like, like, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I think you're always going to run into that. Whereas like in Costa Rica, uh, um, where things are, I mean, it's a, it's, it's pretty, a pretty foreign country, but one that's certainly for Central America, by far the most liberal and, and democratic of, of the nations, you know, you pretty much can do that. You know, I mean, when I first went to Costa Rica, you'd drive on the beach, you know, in Tamarindo for miles, and there was nobody else there and nobody cared. You know, it was all free for the taking, so to speak. And now there's, it would be turtles. impossible there's to do turtles. that. Yeah, it would be impossible to do that now, you know, um, because there's more tourists than turtles. But, um, but, uh, I think, I think that that's another one of those things that I think was really attracted to people about surfing is, is that, and I know it was true for me is all my travel after I became a surfer was directed around wave seeking. So I, you know, I went to France. I didn't go, I didn't go to the Mediterranean. I went, I, I went to the Atlantic coast, you know, I went to Morocco. I, you know, I, I went to Brazil. I went to let me ask you this, though. Do you think this concept that I threw out there that we are so special, we as surfers have a waiver, we get exemption to any nation state and the laws that they may have uh, imposed because don't they know who we are? Like that seems real, like, you know, surfers are the worst type of thing. You know, like look at these punks that are so entitled that they're not going to respect my the laws of this nation state. Yeah. I mean, and and again, it's so it's it. I guess it's it's inevitable that much of what troubles the planet for humans is too many people. That the more people you have, the more likely you are to become to have a, a problem with somebody. Um, the more likely problems are to arise on every level. You know, and, you know, we keep saying, well, we haven't reached that limit yet, you know, but, but here's a fact that always like sobers me up when, uh, when I was born, there were less than 3 billion people living on the planet. And in my lifetime it is now almost 8 billion, which means if you think about it, that more people have been born in our lifetime than were born in the entire history of human life. Yeah. Just in we, the last need, 40 years. We need Elon Musk more than ever, right? apparently. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, how we, I, I, don't know what, I don't know what that means, but I know that, that that's what, you know, the cause of all the localism we were talking about in the mid-70s was based on the fact that people were used to having waves to themselves and suddenly they didn't. And that created this kind of territorialism that's no different than the territorialism of Sioux Indians when, like, guys start driving across the plains in, in, in schooners, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well... We've we've solved a lot. We've covered a lot. I feel like there's a lot more we can discuss, but we're going to save it for yeah. some other. You time. can ask me about the book. I, I mean, what book? Have, oh, so you have a book that you're promoting? I had no idea. I I just finished a book. Oh, I don't know if I'm promoting it. Let me take a it, break. I'm going to use yeah, the restroom, please. Okay, so you've got this new book. I know nothing about it. I apologize. Tell me no. about this book. Well, uh, so it's uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, a cookbook. Called first oh, I, we surf, then we. I eat. remember about the. I remember the cookbook. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, my literary agent. I just love saying that word because it sounds so cool. Is that your wife? My, no, <laughs> no. The literary agent is literally is literally your your lawyer. 
for 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 writers. Yeah. Like people always ask me, "Oh, can you introduce me to your publisher?" And I always used to ask that question too, but just a little aside secret. Yeah. The publisher is like ask is like asking if you have a court case asking to see a judge. Right. You, you got to get a lawyer to present your case because right. they know the laws and the and the judge is not interested in hearing from you. He's interested in hearing from your legal representative. Sure. So if you don't got one, you don't got much of a chance right. to win your case, right. and they're going to plead your case for you. So she, uh, just by happenstance, happened to be. Uh, from Newport Beach, and uh, she specialized in cookbooks. And the last favorite book she'd read was *Barbarian Days*. <laughs> and I and I and I wrote her a note. And like 15 minutes later, she wrote back and said, "I've been looking for a book like this for four years. When can we meet?" Cool. And I just went, "Wow! Talk about throwing some chum in the water and landing a marlin, <laughs> Jesus!" You know. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, then I wrote that book, and yeah. it, it it did pretty well. And so she said, "Well, what's your next book going to be?" And I really had no, I hadn't even thought about that really. So I said, well, you know, 10 years ago, I did this big, I, the California Surf Museum, um, that I curated a, a an exhibit called Women on Waves. And we did this thing. We researched it for two years and we put it on and I could do a history of women surfing. And I don't think I would have taken that on if I hadn't done the exhibit because it was... The framework. I'd spent two years reading and, and researching and doing all that already, but it really only scratched the surface in the sense that it maybe covered 20 or 30 women, you know. So, but I said, but I'm game. Let's do it. Let's go. And of course, you know, when you start in, you, you know, you soon realize you're doing the history of surfing, right? right. Because the, like the oldest board that's been discovered, and this is my opening to the book, the oldest board that's, that was discovered is from like the 1600s and it belonged to a princess. Wow. And in Polynesia. And Polynesia. And, and so, uh, you know, it was in a tomb. Wow. They did it. They do it like they they did the, those burial things in in uh, in, in on Oahu. Uh-huh. And um, where is that board now in the Bishop Museum? Yeah, yeah. And and uh, they so they know quite a bit about it because there's all this this uh, oral history about these people. She was real famous for writing writing waves and doing all her stuff. And uh, can you hold on for a minute? Sure. Is Kevin Kinnear here? Yeah. So I started in on this and quickly realized I was writing the history of surfing just from a single perspective in which women have been intricately involved with surfing since the beginning of it, as far back as we know. And so I just started digging. And what's phenomenal about the Internet now is that you can find stuff, original sources, that before would have been almost impossible. And an example is, you know, I, I, you know, you'd like to see the old newspapers from 1912 in Australia. How would you possibly do that? I mean, you would have to go to Australia and you would have to go to the archives and you would have to have them pass them along to you. Now you'd write them a note and they send you to a, you know, to part of their site and you can look at every newspaper from 1912 to 1914. Yeah. You know, on every page. It's all cataloged and done and you can so you can just dig as deep as you want and then you can also do searches on that so as i begin to do that i began to like just all this stuff began to come up and and then and then what i realized was you can't do 20 or 30 women you know once once because for one thing in the last 25 years let's say or more 
there's been all these different categories. So now you have a world champion longboarder and a world champion shortboarder and a world champion pro and a world champion, you know, in SSA. Who's the most famous woman surfer? Well, well, let me rephrase that. Who, which woman surfer has had the greatest impact on the surf culture? Yeah, that's. Really I have an answer hard. for you. Okay, I mean, I, I, I mean, it, it's. I would say that it's between three, for me. Okay. I wouldn't know what which one. So one would be Rel Sun. One of- one would be Rel Sun. Yeah. One would be Lisa Anderson. Yeah. Um, and and now, um, I, I, honestly. Um, I don't know how you would judge the women. It's become, it's like movie stars now. There used to be in the 50s, there were 10 women movie stars. And well, now speaking there's of 50. movie stars, yeah. my feeling is one of the top three, perhaps, my opinion, is Daryl Zucker's daughter. Is that, her, is that his name, Zucker? Daryl, uh, no, uh, no, no, it's Zanuck. Zanuck, right. Yeah. Daryl was her name. Yes, she perhaps had more influence on surfboard design than any woman ever. And no you know question. the story, I know. Um, and the story is, and maybe you should repeat it, but basically, right, everyone loved her board. They all built these big Simmons boards that, that rode way out on the wave face. And secretly, all the big macho guys at Malibu would grab her board and ride it yeah. during the day, a board that Kivlin or Quig, one of those two, made her which was narrower and more pulled in and worked better and closer to the pocket and the curl of the wave where the energy is. And eventually that design won out. They, they got over their egos and they all started making boards, quote unquote, girl boards, you know, and th- that's, that's the yeah. beginning of the Malibu chip. Yeah. And that's my take. I obviously have a surfboard bias because of the board. Well, no, and, and, but, but I mean that, but, but uh, that's why I say it's hard. It, it's hard to know. Um, like for instance, really probably the best known, woman surfer in the world is Bethany. Yeah. Right? So it's it's hard, yeah. whereas Darylin may have been in, incredibly important to the development of surfing culture and and certainly for to desi- surfboard design, but she's relatively unknown. Hopefully, the people will know her better now. The story actually is that, uh, um, um, and of course, I will forget all these people's names now, but, um, but, uh, this guy came down. He was late, and he and in those days they used to leave their boards on the beach. Yeah, and he came down and he realized he'd he'd forgotten his surfboard. He hadn't left it on the beach. He left it at home. He didn't have it, so he asked Darlin if he could use it. And uh, I, and I and I'm I'm absolutely flipping that I can't say his name, but he was the guy. Tube state. No, no, it, it, it's a it's a different guy. He actually this is one of the founders of of the San Onofre Club, and he's the guy that is the picture at sunset on this, the Beach Boys Surfing USA um, cover. I keep saying these things because I think it will pop into my head. Well, in about two that, hours, right? Yeah, you know what yeah. that is? It's searching for files. Oh, right. um, <laughs> you, need to, you need a new IO. Right? You need an operating I, system. I put this in a I put this in a different file, and I can't figure yeah, out where it is right now. We need right? to get you into OS fourteen. <laughs> so. So he went. He rode this board and went, you know, went straight to to Kivlin and said, "Why have you been holding out on us? What are you doing?" Right. You know. Right. And Kivlin said, "Well, actually, Tommy Zan had come to him to ask him to make this board, and so because that was Darylin's boyfriend was Tommy yes. Zan, right? And yeah. he was a really good surfer, you know. Yeah. And so the 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 interesting part is is that he was dating Marilyn Monroe, 
And he took Marilyn surfing, and Marilyn surfed. She surfed with him, but they went out and surfed all the time. And he was always super complimentary about how how game she was to go surfing. But he also started dating Darylin, and of course, her dad was the producer of the whole friggin' movie, you know, industry. industry. Yeah. So it was like. Which one of these girls makes more sense for me to be dating right now, this unknown starlet or this daughter of like the most powerful guy in the movies? Yeah. So he dumped Marilyn. Dumped you think is the that's wrong why word. he dumped Marilyn? Do you think this was his oh, decision? Oh, he making? says that. Okay, right. He tells this so story. So he was on a power play. Right? It was like, this just makes a lot more sense. Right. You know? And, <laughs> you mean from a dollars and cents perspective? Yeah. I mean, they're both babes. Right. So like he yeah. wasn't, it wasn't like he was like, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, Darylin just recently died, not recently, but I mean, over the la- in the last, ten yeah, 10 yeah. years. And, and, uh, and she was super gay. She, you know, she, she would put her board in her, in, in her dad's beautiful, you know, Lincoln Continental, uh, convertible yeah. and drive, you know, to Malibu and, and go surf. And the board with was them. called Darylin, right? And they yeah. named the board Darylin. And the hilarious thing is if he, if he had stayed with her, it could have been called the Marilyn. Oh, singing <laughs> one. So let's, let's finish this up. Well, tell me about the book and how can we get okay. it? Okay. So the, so the book is, What's it called? it's called women on waves. Yeah. And it goes from, you know, from ancient goddesses and qu- Hawaiian queens to Malibu movie stars to millennial, you know, sure. champions. Yeah. And it's, it spans from like 1600 to today. It's got 700, almost 800 women in it. Um, about a hundred and, I interviewed about 120 to 150 women. I can't even like decide now how many of them I, I did. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's 468 pages. It's a big book. And wow. it, it, it tried to include everyone in yeah. it. Every, every woman who was of any significant surfing and then paid more attention to the giants, you right. know, right. Margot or, or Marge. So in some regards, it's like an encyclopedia. It, it's hopefully not as boring as that. Oh, I um, love encyclopedias. <laughs> oh, good. But, yeah. Well, I hope everybody does. But it's got lots of stories in it. Okay. You know, each each chapter has a, has starts with a story, right. um, and and a lot of them are funny or are tragic or are kind of like illuminate what it's like to be a woman struggling in this yeah. in this genre, yeah. and uh, and how different in different ages it's been, and how women have had to overcome different kinds of challenges in each one. Um, and so it's, uh, and, and there's a lot of women who are significant that we've never heard of, just like a lot of people may never have heard of Darylin, you know, but the first, the first person to ever, to, to bring surfing to Ecuador was a woman. Yeah. And the first person to ever surf in South Africa was a woman. And, and Isabel Latham, who we all revere as being like the, you know, the, the mother of, you know, of, of Australian surfing and rode on the Duke's shoulders at freshwater in front of 3000 people and all of that. Well, not only was she not the first surfer in Australia. She wasn't even the first woman surfer. Yeah. And that's what I was referring to when I was saying you start reading these things. And like she did this in 1912 and in 1911, there's actually a picture of a woman in surfing in yeah. the, the Sydney Herald. Yeah. So, you know, and why was she not known? Because the year after that, she got married and moved to the, to the interior, never to surf again or to be heard of again. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's just what happens. And so a hundred years later, yeah. You know, Isabel's it. And Isabel never claimed that. Yeah. And, you know, and she's and she's a fabulous lady. And it's kind of like Gidget. She wasn't the first girl at Malibu either. But yeah. she's the catalyst. You know, right. she was the one that brought it all out that everybody, you know, like, like followed, you yeah. know, her, her, 
her lead. So there's there's a ton of great stories like that in it, and not they're not my stories. Yeah. They're the women's stories. Cool. I look forward to checking it out. Yeah. Women on Waves. Women on Waves. It comes out July seventh. You must be excited. It's. I'll tell you. It, it's got, it gotten a lot more. We need to uh, do stuff a, than I've ever woman expected. Women on Waves exhibit at the boardroom show. We should, you should, I would love to you do should that. Do something. Oh no, I'm. I've okay, got we'll to talk about it. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So until next time, because I always enjoy speaking with you. you. By the way, people don't know, but Jim, you've been on my show since way back when I was on radio, terrestrial Absolutely. radio in San Diego. In you fact, were one of my guests. The first one that I did was with one of the best women surfers ever. Do you right. remember that? Linda? No. Uh, no. Jericho? Nope. Um, Who were you with? Um, Cassie. Oh, yeah. Cassie, Cassie Leodore. Yeah. And I came to, I think the, that was the very first one that I did with you. You came in studio. And, uh, and came in studio. That yeah. was cool. Yeah. And she is just so, I mean, ever since then, I, I've been the hugest fan. Yeah, and we've I'm been friends. Fan, you know, we made friends right there. She's a cool woman. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, Jim Kempton, until next time, thank you so much. Many thanks to you.
And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.